Hello and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Mandeep and with me today is Vijay Karunamurthy, Field CTO at Scale AI. Vijay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mandeep. Great to be here. Great. So, uh, look, uh, whenever we talk about Gen AI, I love to start off with, you know, what the company does. So would love to hear from you, you know, what Scale AI does. And also, uh, very briefly, your background, how you uh, got here. And, uh, yeah, I think that that would be great. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with Scale AI. So we are a seven-year-old startup that's been at the forefront of this current wave of AI disruption almost from the very beginning. We really started off tackling important problems and how you train models based upon the data that's used to make those models more capable and successful. Um, a lot of the really interesting use cases there involved self-driving cars and autonomy, as well as mapping data and other insights that machine learning has been able to drive there. But more recently, we partnered with some of the real innovators in what are called foundation models, this next generation of models that can answer questions, use capabilities of generative AI, and actually assist human beings to do knowledge work. And our real key role there is learning how to incorporate the insights of human feedback and expert feedback to make those models capable of answering medical questions or legal questions, all sorts of questions where there's critical mission objectives or important nuances in how customers expect to see responses. And really the, the value of expert feedback is helping unlock the capabilities of models for actual human use. And your background? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've been in machine learning for almost 24 years now. Um, I started off as an engineer here in San Francisco. I, I moved out here from Chicago um, uh, back when the, the first dot-com boom was happening. Um, but really, even in the early days, focused on personalization and other interesting applications of machine learning. Um, and then I ended up being an early engineer at YouTube, and I ended up working on search and discovery there. Um, including the search field you see at the top of every and recommended videos you see on the right-hand side of the page. And that was a real interesting insight, the capability of machine learning to personalize um, the sort of content that we see, the ways in which we experience the world around us, and helping people stay more informed on top of breaking news and other recent topics. And from there, really just gained a, a deep appreciation of how AI could influence human behavior. Great. So uh, maybe since you mentioned, you know, uh, the work you do at Scale AI, the data involved uh, in, uh, touches different domains. You, you mentioned self-driving, medical, uh, large language models that we keep hearing about, uh, you know, right now, the foundational LLMs. Help us understand how do you go about, one, ingesting, you know, I mean, we are talking about uh, big data here. So one, ingesting that data and then tagging it in a way where you can actually train these LLMs. So my understanding is your data is being used by a lot of these companies who are training their own LLMs. So what goes into uh, it, again, at a high level technology-wise, and uh, what is your differentiation given you have been doing this for seven years? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So one of the interesting innovations that really pioneered this, this wave of foundation models um, was the invention of what's called the transformer. Um, and that's an approach to building models that are much more capable of looking at web scale data. So they can take all the human writing that's ever been published at the internet, find patterns in that, that, that writing, and use that in order to structure the reasoning about the world or planning around tasks, being able to do really creative things on top of that data. 
So that that those models start off with the capability to learn quite a lot and to attend to a huge range of information that's being passed into them. But actually making those models useful to human being involves a little bit more of a fine-tuning step on top of the model. And so what we do today is a technique called reinforcement learning with human feedback. And one way to think about that is being able to train another model, a model that's just as capable as the model that you might want to publicly release to users or to workers in, in a workplace. Um, and having this other model be the, the teacher or the critique of the model that you're training. So that's what's called a reward model, something that understands how to reward behavior of the original model that actually is useful outputs for a human being to use. You know, something that a medical doctor would say, this is a valid response to a question about a medical diagnosis or something that helps a patient understand their condition better. And punishing responses that actually go off base or that have um, non-factual information, what we call hallucinations, responses that actually don't agree with how humans see the world around them or facts that we know about the world there. These reward models have become much more capable over time, and the kind of data that we use to train those reward models um, requires a lot of human insight, you know, hours and hours of expert feedback, and also a lot of perspective from people that can um, generate creative and thoughtful outputs or responses. For example, in customer support fields, we're looking for feedback from folks that are travel concierges or that work on wealth advisory tasks, those that know what it means to go above and beyond in a customer interaction. And that all goes into the reward models that are used to train the foundation models and help them give more insightful kind and helpful responses so just if, if we can double click a little bit on that like what goes into uh giving feedback because my understanding is when you are doing supervised learning at least uh when i uh started uh, learning about you know the difference between supervised and unsupervised with supervised you're passing label data where you know the training data and and it was a very manually intensive process so i would love to hear some more specifics around is it a manual effort at your end in terms of tagging and annotating this data or is it all uh, done by machines and algorithms yeah there's a big difference between tagging and annotating data, which has been important work that we've done to train, for example, computer vision models and make them state-of-the-art, and the work that we do now with expert feedback. So what we're looking for out of a medical doctor isn't necessarily just tagging text to state um, what parts of the text are, are, are positive or negative. And it might actually be giving best-in-class responses. You know, in a perfect world, a model that understood a lot about a medical diagnosis, how would it talk to a patient? How would it have an appropriate bedside manner? How would it help the patient on their journey of discovery about more about their condition or lifestyle changes that they could make to help mitigate a diagnosis? A, a medical doctor actually understands those interactions really well. And because they're a human being that's lived in the world and understands how people talk to each other, that medical doctor can incorporate all those insights uh, uh, from years of training and education and just being a doctor or a parent or someone that understands um, how people can be fearful of a diagnosis and incorporate that to an answer. So that goes way beyond tagging and annotation, and it actually is incorporating this range of human experiences into the responses that we use to train the model. Once the model is able to see those best-in-class responses from top-tier medical doctors or lawyers, um, the model actually understands what it needs to do in order to find the right information and give that information to a person in a very concise and helpful way. And so we've seen huge improvements in models over time using that type of feedback. But, uh, I mean, again, just for my understanding, our are you capturing facts here or are you capturing generalized knowledge that uh, 
the algorithms will be able to capture in uh, vectors or parameters and and then obviously the companies who are training it attach weights to it like what what is it that you're getting in that feedback loop yeah it is all that and more so it's both facts about the world and the primary sources that you use to find those facts for example a medical doctor being able to point to a journal article that they use to inform a diagnosis Um, it's being able to point to the relevant information response and make sure a human being can read that so structuring response with bullet points or with headings so so that human beings can read them easier but it's also all this insight that we have from being human beings about you know, a medical diagnosis of diabetes can be actually really scary to a patient. And the way in which you talk about diabetes in response to a patient needs to be um, supportive and understanding and talk about potential lifestyle changes, other interventions that patient could do in a way that the patient can understand and not just couched in medical jargon. Um, so it goes well beyond just kind of the, the factuality of the data that's there, which we obviously that's very important in a medical diagnosis, but actually how medical doctors talk to human beings and how they incorporate the, the range of human experience into how they interact. So we keep hearing about L- LLMs with multi-model, you know, aspects, whether it's uh, text, images, documents, video, audio. Like, if I were to ask you uh, the scale of the data, training data that you have accumulated around these uh, formats, is is that a question that you think can be answered or, or it's more complex than, you know, thinking in terms of the modalities? Yeah, it, it's definitely been a really breakneck speed of innovation these last few months. And so you're just starting to see the release of what are called multimodal models. Um, for example, OpenAI released GPT-4V, which is a model that can answer questions about images or video that you pass in. Um, even charts and graphs, it can start to point to how that data can be um, talked about or asked about and be able to render new charts and graphs for you. Um, Google as well has released image capabilities as part of their search generative experience. So I I think that we're just starting to see the power of incorporating um, all of our other senses, you know, sight and sound and other ways in which we interact in the world into how we train these models. And once again, that requires a lot of human intuition and feedback. So we have human experts that are able to look at um, photos of motorcycles and be able to state, hey, someone asked a question about how you fix a suspension or a strut in that motorcycle. How would you go about responding to that question, pointing out the relevant parts of that image in order to answer that response? How would you talk about the make a model of the motorcycle? And is that relevant to the sort of question that you're answering? So it's really tying together this view of the world that we all have as human beings using images and our, our senses together with the power of text and these generative responses that these models are really capable of talking in so that you have a much more complete view of the world as part of the responses. So uh, let me ask you a big picture question. If, like, What would a modern uh, uh, tech stack look like given all the advancements that you mentioned, you know, with regards to data, tagging, annotation, LLMs. What, what do you think uh, the next version of a modern tech stack would look like? Yeah, so we are, are seeing through this vision with a range of Fortune 500 companies and really the use cases of generative AI within enterprises and the tech stack that they're building is really geared towards helping workers do their job at a level that wasn't possible even a year or two ago. So the sort of insights that you get from looking at data, in the past, you might have to go ask a data scientist or an analyst to go query the data for you, generate graphs and charts, and then you have to figure out what sort of narrative or story you, you can derive from that data and how 
you might use that to talk to a customer or to how to talk to someone in a purchasing role at, at a major um, retail company. Today, with these models, you can now build an architecture where the models can write their own data queries, go and query the data, get back some insights and information from that data, and then actually write out a narrative response together with a presentation that you can go and curate and share with a customer. Uh, a great example of that might be a wealth advisor now being able to use a model, and the model goes and queries the customer portfolio data directly and tries to figure out trends and how that portfolio is performing over time and uses a lot of information that the wealth advisor has available about the customer's background or where their family is in order to write a much more nuanced response to that customer. Now, it still takes a wealth advisor that has that customer relationship to figure out whether that response is something that's beneficial to the customer, whether there are certain tweaks that they need to be made in order to make that narrative actually connect with the human being. But having that insight and that data at your fingertips is something that's possible today that, that we couldn't have imagined even a year ago. So that uh, sounds like a big change from the traditional data warehousing days where you know you would take all your data put it into a data warehouse a report gets generated and then that's uh, uh, clearly uh, it, it sounds like uh, that is the big change but when it comes to scale AI like would you consider yourself more of a middleware player or uh, where would you fit in that tech stack between infrastructure and applications uh, exactly? Yeah, the new tech stack has broken down a lot of those boundaries that have set up around middleware and data stores and the front end capabilities. Um, so now these models are much more capable of querying structured data stores and unstructured data in a way that previously would have required a, a data scientist to go and help you do. A, a great example of that might be looking at a travel site um, they have a range of structured data about flights and travel plans and itineraries that ends up being really difficult for the average user at one of these travel agencies to go and make sense of. And some of that data may exist in multiple silos. You know, you think about a large travel site that has hotels and flights and other information, there might be separate silos within that organization for how that data is stored and structured. So these LLMs now have the capability of breaking down those silos, asking questions of data wherever it sits in the organization, with the assumption that you have the right access controls and the right um, info security uh, procedures in place to constrict how those models query that data and how they expose that data to the end user. So we're starting to see a breakdown in how those silos are constructed and how people traditionally thought about middleware versus the data layer. And it's all coming about through the capabilities of these language models to write queries, um, actually look at insights that are derived from that data, and then be able to present that to anyone working in, in any sort of knowledge work in a way that um, is timely and insightful. So in terms of how your customers, since you said a lot of the Fortune 500 companies consume uh, your service, like is is it more of an API call? How how are they using your product and, and what is it that you're providing them? Yeah, it, it can depend on the, the nuances of how data is stored within the enterprise and how customers think about the restrictions and the access controls need to be placed on that data. Um, some of the customers who work with, for example, large banking companies or um, uh, you know, healthcare services, that data is very sensitive and confidential and needs to be kept restricted to certain people within the organization that can access it. You can imagine patient records need to be very tightly controlled. So in order for models to be able to access that, we have role-based access controls, but we also have what are called um, cybersecurity um, um, principles that we put in place around what those models are allowed to do, when those models flag about inappropriate um, questions are being asked of them, um, and how to kind of reveal the, the 
the larger context around why restrictions were put in place. So that actually leads to a huge chunk of work that we do, which is called red teaming. Um, it's being able to look at attacks that you can uh, convey against these models to try to glean information about the enterprise that the models are not supposed to be revealing to the end user. A great example of an attack might be asking a question in a different language rather than English. It may be a language that the model hasn't seen very often. And within that language, you ask to query a database that you shouldn't have access to as a user. Um, the model may ignore all the restrictions that were put in place in English to prevent that user from accessing that data. Um, and so you have to make sure that your model is able to adapt to all these different languages, to images and, and other forms of unstructured data that could be passed in, and still be able to give safe and secure responses to the customers that are asking for that data. Um, that ends up being kind of critical to any sort of enterprise, but especially in these regulated industries that we work in. So, okay, that, that brings up an interesting point. Then, uh, again, when we look at the world right now, there seem to be, you know, seven or eight large language models, obviously, with different parameters and, you know, uh, how they uh, go about training their LLMs. And then every enterprise is looking to use either one of these models or fine-tune their uh the models in a way where they can leverage their own proprietary data. Is that where, you know, uh, a company like yours really has a big use case because every company has got something proprietary that they want to use in LLMs, but they don't want to share it with the, uh, you know, the broader LLM uh, out there. So is that the right way to think about it or you would frame it differently? Yeah, we, we think there's a really diverse future ahead of us where both API gated and API access models and open source models are going to thrive often in different ways for different customers. So we have some great partnerships with some of those large model providers you mentioned. Um, we have a partnership with OpenAI where we are the, the fine tuning partner that, that customers are able to use um, for OpenAI's GPT 3.5 uh, model. So an example is for a partnership we might do there, we might take an education or ed tech company and fine tune OpenAI's model so that it gives helpful and authoritative answers to college students or biology or chemistry students that are asking questions of the model. Um, and even personalize the responses based upon whether that student is a freshman just starting off in the field or a senior that actually has taken pretty advanced courses so that that person doesn't have to write pretty complicated prompts to the model in order to get the right sort of responses. Um, we also see there's a world where open source models are going to win within enterprises and governments where they might not necessarily want their data to leave the bounds of how that that. Um, that data is deployed, and they actually need really tight control over how the models are fine-tuned, how they're trained, um, and also how you test and evaluate those models. So uh, everything that we just talked about, about cybersecurity principles and best practices, um, you can do that with the open source models within the bounds of how you deploy the enterprise and ensure that you have the safety and auditing and other controls in place um, in order to be able to securely deploy those models. And we're seeing a lot of regulated industries leaning down that direction as well. So talking about testing and evaluation, it, like, have you come across a way to segment what is the ratio of useful data versus noise when you are, uh, you know, feeding these large data sets for training? Yeah, we've, we've become experts in figuring out what are the really subtle interactions that 
that are important to look at when you're doing testing and evaluation of models. So that there's kind of a base layer of interactions that you can do what we call automated testing and, and deterministic testing around. These are where you can train models to test other models. And those models ask questions that are known to be tricky to other models where um, that model might be giving a non-factual answer or that model might have information that's out of date. And you could do that in an automated fashion and do that repeatedly every day. Um, but there's also a range of interactions that it really takes human insight in order to assess how the model is performing. Um, so this might be asking a very specific legal or tax advisory question to a model. You might actually need a tax advisor in order to assess whether the primary sources that model cited in its answer are the correct primary sources, whether there's more timely recent information. Has there been legislation that's recently been passed in the country that you're in that impacts tax law? Um, having all of that feedback go back to the model is being important. And so we understand that at, at the, the bleeding edge of how you're assessing model performance, there's always going to need to be a human in the loop that's doing part of that interaction and really doing that at that scale. Yeah, so uh, given, you know, uh, we've talked about how uh, useful uh, some of this technology is and clearly, uh, you know, we've found a way to stack it all up in a way where it will be productive for companies to deploy. What is the limiting factor right now? If I were to ask you, why are things not happening faster? than they seem to be, even though I would say uh, it's been evolving quite rapidly. But uh, I mean, do you think it can uh, grow fast uh, even at this pace? And if there is a limiting factor, what is it? Yeah, that's a great question. Right now, the real bottleneck is us, all of us human beings. You know, there are not enough machine learning researchers out there that really understand the, the innovations of the last two years and what we've really done with this transformer architecture. And so the, the, the ability to hire some of the best talent out there is a, a really strong capability that we have that, that I think every startup right now needs in order to make a lot of progress here. Um, but the other limiting factor is just experts in a given field or domain and people that are able to give feedback to these models. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the sort of insights that it takes to answer a biology question correctly for someone in an undergrad in college. Um, the number of people out there that understand, you know, what a sophomore in organic chemistry really is looking for out of a model and how to explain that topic to that individual in a way that's really going to connect and resonate with them and also express just the, the joy of learning organic chemistry um, is, is still a pretty small pool of individuals, so often those that are professors or those that spend a lot of time as graduate students with, with undergrads. Um, so finding the right people to help the models understand how to engage with humans um, more successfully is a real big bottleneck that we have here. I do want to come back to uh, uh, one question which, or a reference that I made in passing before, middleware. I mean, again, when you look at you know the enterprise software market, there are a number of pure play middleware companies that have been involved with uh, cleaning up data and uh, basically helping ingest uh, it in a way where it's structured. Do you think with the advances that we have made in uh, the technology now, all that work can be automated in a way where you don't need as much manual involvement, or at least the way we were structuring the data before, you don't need it anymore because the algorithms have gotten smarter? Yeah. You know, we, we've gone through now a couple different eras of what people think about as big data and, and what that's meant for, for the enterprise. Um, I remember at YouTube uh, the day that our millionth video was uploaded, 
um, just how exciting that was and how scary it was to think about how quickly that would grow to 10 million and 100 million videos uploaded. Um, but it, it really is you know, now a brand new world where these models are able to be trained on all the writing that's ever been published on the internet. And I imagine, you know, in a time in the near future, they'll also be able to look at all the videos that were uploaded to YouTube and all the, um, you know, music that's ever been published by musicians. Just the amount of data that these models will be able to look at is just going to be enormous. So I think as you think through the capabilities that we have today that we didn't have five or 10 years ago, it really is going to break down a lot of those barriers that people traditionally associated with middleware. You know, the kind of workflows that you've built in order to make sure you have a lot of timely information about what's happening on a website or an app or in a shopping experience, those workflows will probably be now changed by the fact that these models can go query that data automatically, derive really interesting insights, maybe flag to you as the user, hey, something's happening on Black Friday that feels very different than it did a Black Friday a year ago, without you ever as a user ever having to write that query and query a SQL database and figure out that analysis for yourself. So I, I think we're entering a world where the reasoning and planning capabilities these models end up restructuring how we do software engineering from basic principles. And we're all kind of figuring out what that, that future looks like. And, and just to piggyback on that point, do you think there could be any copyright issues because we are feeding, you know, large amounts of data and uh, I, I guess some of it you could argue uh, you may not have all the rights to, but someone can claim down the line that it's an, uh, an inappropriate use. Uh, you see, foresee that kind of situation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that when it comes to human writing, not all writing is created equal. You know, what someone wrote on a blog post about the works of Shakespeare is going to be very different than being able to look at the writing of Shakespeare himself, or maybe what college professors over the year has said about Shakespeare and the themes and topics that are present in his work. So I, I think you're going to find a lot more value placed on authoritative and insightful information that could be used to train the models on all sorts of fields, whether it's poetry or plays or creative writing or medical or legal advice. Um, we're going to find ways to get the proper attribution to the original authors of those works so that when you look at a model response, you could tell, hey, this was informed by a medical expert at Johns Hopkins University or some other university that's actually published research on this field, as opposed to something written on a blog that maybe isn't authoritative information that you should be considering. Um, all of that's going to make the, you know, the evolving nature of copyright law very interesting for the next couple of years and definitely something to keep a close eye on as, as these models evolve in their capabilities. So when people say these models are black boxes and you know the parameters are tokens that you don't know what they are, they are mathematical vectors, all this can be maintained in a way where you have references and you can do the right attributions. It's not a black box, I guess. Yeah, it's one of the core principles that we have around test and evaluation is, yes, these models to some extent are a black box and that you can't tell why a specific thought happened the way that it did. But you can look at the data that was used to train the model. You can look at ways to interrogate the model or demonstrate how model outputs are changing over time. Um, and you can also just ask the model to explain its own reasoning and talk about what sources that it used in order to get a response. Um, so we're seeing the application of all those techniques being used to help understand how the models perform better in, in a way that you can help improve the models over time. You know, the end goal of this should be models that consistently give factual, authoritative answers to the questions that you're asking, and that you're able to hit very high accuracy and precision and recall rates as you measure how the models are performing against different sorts of prompts. Um, and so I, I think we're approaching rapidly towards that future 
future. It's, it's going to take a really um, set of, of key insights around data and how you evaluate models um, in, in order to get there over the next couple of years. Got it. And so I'd like to uh, reserve the last five minutes for lightning round and some rapid fire questions so you can keep your answers brief for those. Uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, I'll go through them one by one. Uh, training versus inference, which one do you think will be a bigger market uh, five, 10 years down the line? Inference. I, I think there's going to be a range of open source and open access models. And so inference times and the capabilities you have at inference time are going to end up being much more powerful. Where will inference be done? Uh, mostly uh, cloud, edge, anything else? Everywhere. And it depends on the use case. For some mission critical objectives, You know, for example, in conflict zones, you're going to want to do inference at the edge. For other use cases, you're going to want the much more capable models that you get on the cloud. And so it's going to range depending upon the customer. How many LLMs do you think will be there 10 years down the line? I think literally tens of thousands of LLMs. You're going to see a flourishing of open source models, a flourishing of different fine-tuned and domain-specific models. Um, so the, the key aspect we need is test and evaluation across all those models to establish some ground truth parameters around how they perform. What could go wrong with the assumptions that you're making? Well, we think that these models are going to gain in capabilities very quickly over the next couple of years. But some of the limiting factors there are still around harnessing human feedback and expert feedback to get the models to that next level of performance. So we really do think there might be a bottleneck in people that understand how these models perform, are able to improve the model performance over time. And so having everyone kind of understand what actually we're hoping to achieve and what sort of goals we're trying to accomplish as a democracy um, is going to be really important to make sure we have models that are safe, that are open for everyone to use, um, and that you know my daughter or anyone else can feel comfortable using those models in the future. Most important metric for your business success? I would say having safe and trusted models that transform how we use technology is really our, our North Star right now. Um, and so our, we'll judge our success in five years by whether these models have been incorporated into our day-to-day -day life, whether they inform how we understand the world around us, and yet we trust those models to give us useful, insightful information. Biggest use case of LLMs uh, five years from now? I absolutely think the medical domain is one of the most exciting ones. Uh, the ability of these models to look at you as a human being and give you some really key insights into what's happening with your body, with your health, with how you're interacting with the world around you is just game changing for all of us. I think it's really going to transform how we see ourselves and how we see the world. And any misconceptions about scale AI or I guess generative AI in general that you want to clear on this podcast? Yeah, I would say the biggest misconception is that these models are only trained on data that's from the internet and that they don't require fine tuning in order to be useful. And the actual key insight that we've gained the last couple of years is the fine tuning step, though it may not require a huge number of GPUs or compute footprint, it ends up being the most important part about making a model that's generally available and useful to human beings. Um, and so we, we'd like people to focus on what that fine tuning means and how we can make that fine tuning step work better um, in order to make these models more capable. And uh, last question, actually it's a perfect segue since you mentioned GPUs. Will we be supply constrained uh, with the availability of GPUs or accelerators a couple of years from now? Absolutely. I, I think the Supply constraints around GPUs aren't going away. This field is just exploding by leaps and bounds. 
Um, so it's incumbent on all of us to understand the geopolitical implications of that and be able to make sure that, um, you know, we as democratic um, um, countries have the, the right supply of this technology of the future and be able to train future models um, with that supply constantly flowing. Great. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure, Vijay, to have you on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, wish you all the best uh, with the future uh, of Scale AI. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah. It was great chatting. Thank you so much.